Hi, thanks for listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Policy and Communications Director for Equality Arizona and the host of this podcast. Arizona Equals is a conversational interview podcast rooted in the idea that stories have power. Each episode, we sit down with an LGBTQ person living in Arizona to talk about their community ties and their experiences in the state. Today on the show, I got to interview May Tuamankala. They're a personal friend of mine and the Democracy Defender Director for Arizona AANHPI for Equity. We first met a little over a year ago when we were working together at a migrant rights and criminal justice nonprofit called Puente. Since then, we've been able to share knowledge and to collaborate a bit, including with a recent LGBTQ Healing Circle event hosted by Arizona AANHPI for Equity at their offices in Tempe. I've always been really impressed by the quality and originality of May's work and the dedication they bring to the work. And so I was really interested to find out what some of the motivations are that drives them to do the work. And over the course of this conversation, I was able to uncover some of those layers from their time in Arizona's criminal justice system to their experience as the child of immigrant parents. At every turn in May's story, they're always finding ways to use their skills and their interests to help others and to build community. I was so happy to be able to record this kind of conversation with them, and I really hope that you enjoy the interview too. But before we get started, if you're listening to this episode on the date of its release, it's August 31st. In just a little bit over a month, we'll hit the registration deadline for voters who want to participate in the 2022 elections. With that in mind, we're dedicating most of the month of September to voter registration events, and we need your help as a volunteer. To help us register voters in the month of September, visit equalityarizona.org events today to sign up for some of our volunteer opportunities. And now, let's get the conversation started. Democracy Defender Director at AZAANHPI for Equity. That's Arizona Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders for Equity. Thanks for having me here today at your office. Last time I came here was for the LGBT Healing Circle event that you put on, which I was really honored to be invited to. I think that was a great experience, and it was the first time I had seen your office. And I'm just really impressed with all the work you're doing. When I got here today, you had like a dozen people coming in and out. And it seems like the scale of your work is really taking off. Um, You're doing work that I don't think really any other organization is doing the way you're doing it. You know, you have your focus areas, but then you find focus areas that are corollary and associated, and you use that to expand the whole scope of your work, like with the LGBT Healing Circle or with the criminal justice work that you do. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this organization and what your approach is to that work? Yeah. um, Well, what really got me into organizing and advocacy was me being um, incarcerated. You know, back in 2016, I was locked up. I spent, you know, a good couple of months in county jail and I saw 
how many people were freaking out about possibly spending you know, so many years in prison, and they had no idea how to navigate the system. And I do have you know, some college in my background, and I was like the only one who really like, knew how to write, um, really knew how to like, read the legal paperwork, so mm -hmm. I would volunteer my time to um, kind of like discuss things with people who were like fighting their charges. Right. And then, you know, when I was in prison, that's when I really wanted to help others. And I did, uh, we hosted Toastmasters, you know, we trained uh, for public speaking, just, you know, to help people out with their interviews, how to advocate for themselves, and just be comfortable with their story and not feel like, you know, they are the bad guy. Like, there's a, a reason why, you know, this has happened in their life. And there are people out there who are empathetic and compassionate and believe in second chances and all of that. Yeah, and that there are ways for the system to work that could be healthier for them. Right. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting when you talked about your very first experience uh, in the county jail where it wasn't just what was happening to you that motivated you to get into advocacy, but you said, here's a way to apply my abilities and that's what got you motivated, is you saw people struggling with a system that didn't really care about them, didn't care about working right for them, and you said, oh, well, I can help. Yeah, they were just a number, and I think just me having a little more education than majority of them really um, helped my case. You know, I was facing up to 12 years, and they wanted me to do four and a half years. I ended up you know, pleading for um, leniency, and I end up getting two and a half, a little under three years. Okay. What is that process like, being confronted with a, with a plea bargain or being given that, you know, that, that kind of terrible message of here's, here's the potential sentence you could be facing, and then going forward from there to find uh, a way to improve the situation? What is that like? It's really intimidating. Uh, I mean, I know like over 90% of people who are charged, they just take the plea bargain. Yeah. Because they say like, if you lose the trial, if you lose the case, there is a good possibility that you'll get the maximum. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the maximum is at least 12 years. And no one wants to risk that. They'd rather just do the, you know, four years or the five years. So then you know, they bargain or they take the plea right. and then they also don't have resources to get an attorney to go through the trials and stuff. From the moment someone gets put into the system, it's not like it's something they've ever been prepared for by anyone and it's not like they are given the best resources by the system. No. And. I think that there's like a, a psychological experience to that that is, is difficult to comprehend that I've only really been aware of because of some of my friends, in, including you, who have gone through that. Um, I, I know for trans people, often the policy is to isolate them, which then only makes it worse because you don't even have anyone else to talk to about how it might work. Um, no, I mean, all trans people who are in county, 
they are in solitary confinement. Yeah. Because, yeah. It, I, I don't even know how to ask a question about that because it's just... It's sad. Yeah. It really, it's torture. It's very traumatizing. Right. I mean, even if they have a minor offense, they're still having to go through solitary confinement. Yeah. And then moving forward from that point, um, over the, the multiple years that you were in the system, was your experience inflected by your queer identity? Was that something that changed the time that you served compared to maybe some of the other people that you were incarcerated with? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, when I, so everyone goes through an intake process where they have to um, be in prison as if they were in maximum custody. So you're locked up for 23 hours for up to a month um, in solitary confinement because they need to categorize you and figure out which yard you're going in. And part of that intake, um, they do talk about PRIAs, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Okay. Um, and then they ask you if you are gay or not. That, that's a thing that they ask every person? Yeah. Wow. They do. Um, I think I lied and said I wasn't gay because <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be targeted. Right. But because I was uh, masculine presenting, during that time, you know, I had short hair, yeah. um, pretty much of a tomboy. Um, I was targeted by correction officers, and they um, they would threaten me with disciplinary tickets because um, one, I got a haircut that was considered radical, but it was just like a short haircut for a woman. Wow. So um, that would have been a ticket, and that would have made me serve a hundred percent of my time, where. You know, if you get out on good behavior, you serve 85% of your time. Yeah. And then also, um, some people who were queer um, got tickets for sitting too closely to other uh, people who were incarcerated. So it's, it's not even about, because you didn't check the box on the form, you didn't answer their question, and that doesn't even matter. They still decide that that's the box you're in and that they're going to treat you differently because of it. Yeah, just because of how I presented myself. How did that affect how other people uh, associated with you? Were, were people more or less likely to interact with you based on the discrimination you faced from, from the guards? To be honest, more people talked to me. And I was, um, you know, a lot of people liked me on the yard. I mean, first of all, I was friendly. You know, right. I was always positive. I try to keep a good attitude. But no one has been in a world where everyone is the same, um, I don't want to say gender, but like everyone is born female, you know? And right. then you see the gender dynamics because not everyone identifies as feminine. So, right. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear more about that. It's, it's like an alternate microcosm of, of gender. And I think that's not an experience that everyone really understands. People don't always really get how gender can change contextually and, and um, how, it's, how it's an exchange and a conversation. So can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I mean, everyone, um, 
you know, was born female, but the gender dynamics were really obvious in there. Like, you know, from the way people dressed or, you know, there were relationships in prison. A lot of times when people are locked up and going through a traumatic experience, they want to be with a partner just to cope with all of that. Right. You know, so you see a lot of women start, you know, taking on masculine traits to be that support for, uh, yeah. say, like more feminine women. Mm -hmm. And it happened a lot. Like, this is really common. Um, you know, if they were to have a relationship and the correction officers found out about it, um, usually the masculine presenting person would get um, sent to solitary confinement. Wow. So it's, it's a specifically gendered violence that's happening in a place that's already a form of gendered violence. It's, it's those layers. You mentioned that partly because of that, you earned more trust from people, I think, it, it sounds like. Um, you also mentioned, you know, at every step in this process, you were finding ways to help people. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those things was the Toastmasters program. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your involvement in that, and, and what does that look like? So I was the one running around the yard. Um, we like made a banner um, that said like, you know, Toastmasters in the cafeteria, everyone show up and I would promote it. Um, I would help facilitate it. And I would always, you know, give my speech and really get people uh, engaged with the program. Because, you know, some people, they just want to leave from their bed or a cubicle and go somewhere, but like, I I think I like, you know, really um, empower empower yeah. the people who showed up. You made it more than just a place to be. Right. And then, um, when we were working together at a at a migrant rights criminal justice organization, you hosted what I'll always remember as just like a really excellent public speaking workshop. Mm -hmm. um, do you get a lot of opportunities to use? those skills in your current work? Oh gosh, yes. Nice. <laughs> That's all I do is speak. I mean, it really is the most powerful weapon is, you know, our voice. And me being able to just like share my stories about my incarceration experience, mm -hmm. even like my um, Asian American identity, you know, just talking yeah. about that, that has been such a, a tool for me to advance in my career. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't focus on that during um, being incarcerated because I was doing so much self-reflection and just like yeah. growing. You work in an organization that's specific to an identity that you have. I work in an organization that's specific to an identity I have. And sometimes I, I feel like, okay, this is work that I care about. This is work that I like. But it's not necessarily the work I have to do just because it's my identity and it's the kind of work I like to do. I could potentially work for another organization that I care about, but sometimes we end up in these, in these organizations that are about us on some level, right? So how does that work for you? I think, you know, I could, like you mentioned before, I was a criminal justice organizer yeah. um, in a Latino-based organization, 
but I felt like I really needed to bring the criminal justice movement into my identity, which is, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders, mm -hmm. and um, bring in the work to us, because I feel like there hasn't been enough organizing with the AAPI community, especially in Arizona. You know, we're like the first one that's promoting civic engagement and building political power, and it's 2020. I right. mean, it's 2022. Oh, 2022, yeah. Why do you think that is? What, ex what, what do you see that explains that gap? Um, I, think, I think it's just, just recently, you know, the population is growing. Okay. Um, people are migrating to Arizona, and they are Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. So now we're having more you know, power in numbers, so we can do something like this and organize um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So it's about those population trends, people coming to Arizona. I know that you're not originally from Arizona. Um, you moved from, where did, where did Chicago? Chicago uh, which I think actually, I was looking at some numbers in terms of like net migration. Chicago is one of the biggest sources of, of population growth in Arizona. Um, what was it for you that brought you from Chicago to Arizona? Well, I moved here when I was 20 and I was still in the closet. Oh, okay. So I was, you know, really depressed. I had no vision for my future and I felt like I had to just move somewhere to truly discover who I am and to be open with my, you know, uh, queer identity. What was it about where you were, maybe not the location, but where you were in your life, that that seemed like the way to be able to open up, to just relocate? Well, I think in Chicago, a lot of the areas are pretty segregated, and everyone stays in you know their own little bubble. It's hard to get out of the city. I see. And I grew up in the suburbs. I mean, I went from I was born and raised, like they would say, like it's the hood. And then my parents ended up saving enough money to move into the suburbs so I can get a good education. And then when I moved to the suburbs, I saw like, you know, this is like a perfect life. All, we have all the resources, but I had like resentment because, you know, my friends that I left, they were struggling. And then right. we would go visit my cousins that still lived in the poor neighborhoods. and you know, they didn't have the type of opportunity, so I was able to see two perspectives. I but see. the thing about the suburbs is that they're very conservative. No one is open about being queer. So I felt like I really had to leave um, Chicago. I see. Mm -hmm. And then coming to Arizona, was that something that you were able to find right away in terms of community that you could open up with? Oh, yes. So. Um, I think it was like 2009 and I was like really into computers so I would there was this website called downlink and it was a queer um, BIPOC like dating app or website it was oh, like wow. AOL chats yeah and I actually met someone that lived in Arizona and from there I was able to network and throw like huge parties that had like over 30 lesbians just hanging out. Wow. And this is through 
person-to-person -person connections through online things and then building that community around that? Yeah, it okay. all started from the online community and then I was able to branch out and just meet more and more um, queer people. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So you said that you were really into computers, which is a, a line of conversation I can't skip because I, I'm a total tech nerd too. I think 2009, sometimes I look back on it's like one of the most exciting times for that in terms of changing trends and online communities. What were some of your early internet community experiences and what do you see now in terms of the possibility of finding community like that online? Oh, I miss the old online communities. Yeah. For me, it started when I was, you know, 10, 12 years old in AOL chat rooms. And I remember, you know, staying in those chat rooms and pretending to be like a 15-year-old male. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and that was like the highlight of my days, but that's when I really, you know, um, played around with gender and really lived uh, how I felt like I was. Yeah, I, I think that's a common experience. Like when it, people could just message ASL mm -hmm. and you could decide, Yeah. right? And now I think, you know, Facebook created a lot of like real identity kind of policies and that shifted how the internet works in some ways. Now I feel like if you go into one of the major social networks, you're really unlikely to make new friends or new connections. As an organizer, I think a lot of your job, you know, and as someone who runs teams of organizers now, is about making connections. Do you feel like social media and the internet are a place where that can happen? It is, but the way it's going is, you know, there's data on everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's all about data and where you target your ads. Okay. Right? Um, with me, you know, I was able to organize the AAPI visual, the Unity March, through yeah. direct messaging. Like, uh, because we were all quarantined, you know, it was messaging all my friends or people who have, you know, commented on my post or mm -hmm. liked my post. And I was able to meet, to make real connections that way. But um, some organizations, they're not doing that, like actually messaging and building these real relationships. They just right. want to like make the impression on your screen <laughs> and then that's yeah. it. That's a really good point. I think using actual messaging and making actual requests of people uh, is, is different than just figuring out, oh, can I get the right metrics? Can I get the right mm -hmm. ad stats? You mentioned the Unity March. I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. This was earlier in the pandemic, right? And what was the process of putting that together like? <sighs> it was really stressful. Yeah. So the date that we decided on doing the Unity March was the same date that the neo-Nazis were rallying in Phoenix. Okay, and, and when was this? This was April of 2021. Okay. So they were coming, we didn't really know how large of a crowd they were bringing. Uh, we just knew that people were flying from different states and we were concerned for the safety of our, of our community, but we also didn't want them to think that, you know, we were scared of them and that, you know, the hate that they're um, displaying is, is effective, you know, it's keeping us inside. 
So up until like two days before we decided to um, reschedule the, the Unity March. Okay. Mm -hmm. In response to some of the threats of violence, or what was the what was the deciding factor there? Well, there was a lot of factors. Um, we were scared that there were going to be other groups coming in to antagonize yeah. um, the crowds, whether if they were neo-Nazis, um, I don't want to say Antifa, but we were scared of Antifa <laughs> at that time. Even though, you know, they mean well, but we didn't want any violence to happen and to have... You right. Know, you didn't want things to escalate. Right. Yeah. Are those concerns that you're still dealing with in, in your work of oh. escalation and, and violence? Yes. Um, I mean, I think just us trying to protect the elections, you know, there is that fear that, you know, if the election deniers don't like the results, you right. know, they're going to start something. You know, they carry around guns. Uh, the past two rallies that I was at, um, you know, there was a gun scare and I ended up running from the crowd because yeah. someone had, you know, shouted like, he's got a gun, or there was a confrontation. Yeah. So, I mean, the work is definitely um, getting hard mm -hmm. or harder. Right. When I talk to people, a lot of these shifts are centered on the pandemic in some way, whether it's additional hate or additional violence, or in some cases, really good things. People move people start new careers, people find ways to come out that they didn't feel like they could before. Do you think that some of the violence that you experience or have to take precautions around is something that's gotten worse during the pandemic and, and because of the pandemic? Or do you see that as sort of a, just, a, just a parallel thing? Um, the pandemic does have something to do with it, but I think the overall is the climate crisis. Oh, okay. Um, which is causing, you know, the, the economy to not be stable and resources are limited now. So people are going to want to blame, you know, certain people for that. I see. And it always results to um, people blaming immigrants coming in or, you know, communities of color, and there's just more tension now. That's something that I think is troubling. You know, you talked about how population growth is allowing for new kinds of organizing and, and community power building. And you mentioned moving here um, back around 2009 it's just gotten hotter every year since. Arizona could potentially be a pretty unlivable place if we don't take real climate action. So are you concerned from that perspective about how long you can stay in the state and what it could mean for the kinds of work that you're doing if Arizona turns into more of a climate disaster? Oh yeah, that is a battle I deal with every day is, mm. you know, what is the future of Arizona? And because we do have um, a water crisis and just like, you know, it being getting hotter every day, 
um, tensions are going to grow and people are going to start pointing fingers at, you know, yeah. the opposite group. And there's just, there's just more fight to do here. And I think, you know, I'm going to be here for a while mm -hmm. because there's still lives that are affected right now. You know, I'm scared for the future, but right now there's always going to be a fight. I see. So for you, a lot of the reason to stay in Arizona is because you want to make things better in Arizona. It's not like you're looking at it and saying, this is going to get unlivable. Do I need to leave? It's, this might get unlivable. What can I do to continue to live here? Is that an yeah. accurate assessment? Yeah, no, I definitely have hope still. I think, especially with Gen Zers, like they just get it. And the youth, they understand a lot of people have climate anxiety. They want everyone to work together and come up with solutions. Yeah. And that's not going to happen if people who organize the community start leaving. What are some of the things that give you hope when you work with younger people? I know that you have like a fellowship program. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see in, in terms of their perspective and, and what is it like to work with people in that position and, and that point in their life? Oh, I think they're just so, they're maybe more empathetic. You know, they can see themselves in other people's shoes mm -hmm. and really look into the issues. They also are tech savvy. So, you know, if I just bring up an issue, they're able to research, um, research it and really, um, follow the science where, you know, the older generations, they don't know how to navigate the internet. Oh, I don't want to say all of them. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm I mean, that's fair. Yeah. But I think that's, that's true of the experience, right? There's, there's some old people who have been using computers for their entire lives too, but mm -hmm. it's different when you're 20 and, and the iPod existed when you were born. Right? Yeah. That's, that's a different experience. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, I guess with older people, it is a little harder to get them to even want to research more on an issue mm. because they may be too busy or they're already set in stone with their beliefs. So is that something that you run into in your work? Do you have those moments of trying to connect to older generations? Our approach is um, speaking to the youth and having them speak to their family members. Oh, okay. I think that is the most effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you see as the role of family in a lot of these issues? Because I think, you know, with queer identities, sometimes the family can be a source of a lot of trauma or at least trouble. But there's also a lot of power, I think, in terms of how culture is carried through families. Mm -hmm. um, so in the work that you do, what, what do you see as the, the place of the family and, and how, does, how does that play into things? Yeah, so family is the driving factor of why I do this work. Okay. I mean, just seeing what my parents went through working for a manufacturing company and seeing them being exploited for their labor and then realizing, you know, it's part of the bigger picture of how America used immigrants for labor jobs. And that's why, you know, they were allowing so many to come in. Right. And just through my family's experience, 
um, I'm able to really understand what's going on uh, with the whole country. Are, are both of your parents immigrants? Yes. And so as a, as a kid of immigrant parents, what was your perception of the, the people around you, like the, the city that you were in, the schools that you were in? What were some of those experiences like in, a, in kind of a firsthand way? Well, I mean, them being in you know, the labor industry, they mm -hmm. were away from the home you know, often. Yeah. And that led to like mental health issues because I was the only child. And being an organizer and speaking to the community, I was realizing that a lot of Asian American uh, people had the same experience as me. I see. And, um, you know, it's not by coincidence, like, oh, how come all these Asian Americans have these jobs that are like backbreakers? Oh, uh, yeah. You know? Um, well, they did it on purpose. They allowed people to come from different countries and then put them into these jobs and really didn't give them a good exit plan. Yeah. You know, right now my parents are working under the table because they, they were laid off because, um, you know, physically they can't do the work anymore and they have to figure out what they're gonna do for their retirement. And that story is very common within, you know, the AAPI community. And it doesn't seem like there's the resources that that community that your parents are in needs. Those resources aren't there. No, they don't even speak English, so. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, they're a little better off in Chicago because they have more um, translation services, but in Arizona, it's, it's worse here. And that's why I think the work that we do is really important. Yeah, it, it is really important. I think um, I've spoken with other people about how in the Asian American community in, in Arizona, it can be really difficult to find resources or community centers. And that actually the work you're doing is sometimes the first thing people can find where they can actually be around people who are like-minded and have similar experiences. Yeah. And I, that was the whole point of the healing circle, um, the LGBTQ edition. Yeah. Like I felt like I had no support within the AAPI community for being queer. You know, I feel the most judged by Asian Americans because of what I dealt with with my family. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure that people had a place to go to talk about um, the Asian American identity and also being queer. Yeah, so that series, you've been doing a series of different healing events, right? Mm -hmm. And you're bringing in issues like LGBTQ identities. What are some of the other experiences that, that you're bringing into those spaces? The one we did before was uh, bridging the generational gap. Okay. So just talking about the family experience and being so different. And then the next one we're doing is um, coping with climate anxiety. Okay. And then we also want to do one that focuses on mental health with, you know, AHPI people. And who knows what more we'll do. Yeah. I love that, though. I think... Um, Everything we've talked about, we've already touched on those themes. We've touched on generational relationships and climate change and mental health mm -hmm. and LGBT identities. And I think that's how life works. There, things aren't silos, right? But a lot of people don't approach the work of organizing outside of a silo. It seems like 
just the experiences you've had as a person who exists in multiple overlapping spaces is what informs that work. But I, I'd be curious to know what your sense is of why maybe things don't gel as well as they potentially could. I mean, the whole point of me putting out the Unity March was for uh, cross-cultural collaboration. Yeah. And I think we have so many organizations that are, you know, indigenous, Latino, or mm -hmm. Latinx, uh, black, um, LGBTQ, mm -hmm. but we're not speaking to each other even though we have the same enemy. Right. <laughs> you know, and if we all were to come together, we would be, we would be able to move mountains, but you know, back in the 60s, they had the Third World Liberation Front, and that was um, destroyed because they came up with the model minority myth and basically pinned Asians and black people against each other. And we're constantly, I mean, I'm not saying we're... Um, no, it's okay. I don't think it's like dire. I don't think it's like people can't talk to each other. From my perspective, the Unity March was a big success. Do you think that that's something that's going to keep getting better? Is that something that you're seeing moving forward? Is that ability to collaborate and talk to each other? Yeah, I would love to do more unity marches. I think maybe what I was saying with um, the other organizations is the way that the system is, it ends up being white people who are in charge with the funding. Yeah. So we are always tiptoeing around like the real issues, and when we do speak up, they tend to kind of like put it on the back burner. Yeah. There's a way things get prioritized based on funding decisions and sometimes just a fear of conflict that I think does end up with, with worse outcomes like you're talking about. I know that we've talked in the past about the fact that the work you're doing is unique and that attracts funders who wouldn't previously be engaging in work. Um, so it seems like maybe that is a trend that is going to happen where some of the systems of control and dependency can maybe break down and, and make room for more of the kind of work that you're promoting. Yeah, I'm, I think it is going in that direction. Uh, more funders are looking for work that is promoting you know, marginalized communities and communities mm -hmm. of color. So that's a good thing. You know, it's, it's a really specific choice to say, I'm going to go into nonprofit work and advocacy work um, where things maybe aren't always stable. The funding isn't stable. Sometimes the organizations aren't stable. And yet I know basically everyone that works in this field goes through some kind of crisis like that maybe every couple of years and then says, okay, let me start over again. Let me keep doing this. I think I have a really good sense after talking to you and just knowing you, what keeps you going. But just from like a psychological standpoint, that cycle of chaos, I don't get why it doesn't push us out of the work. What is it that- We love it. We're, yeah. we're chaos fiends. <laughs> <laughs> what is it then that makes it worth it? for you to, to push through some of those uh, difficult things about funding and, and prioritization and then just say, yep, okay, dust myself off, pick myself up, get back at it. 
I mean, I did go to college to study philosophy, and I was always interested in, like, um, governance and just, like, how society should be, mm. you know? And I feel like with community organizing, that's a way of philosophers to share their wisdom and knowledge and to kind of share that vision of a, of a society that they would want to be a part of. For you, is there something that grounds you because that's, that's not something that can just happen, right? Like you're dealing with the constraints of society and the constraints of the nonprofit model and saying, here's the better vision, let's make it work. I think that that's a way to have a more sustainable and, and healthy organization and eventually a more sustainable and healthy society. But it's, it's a long process mm-hmm. and it's kind of a painful process. So what keeps you grounded through that? It is definitely a long process, but we do see, you know, improvements in society. I think if you look at more progressive states, Mm -hmm. um, they're doing some amazing things, like uh, what Pennsylvania with um, criminal justice reform, you know, just like people who are running for attorney general or, or county attorney. Yeah. Those people share the vision and they're almost in the seat of power to change things. Yeah, so you, you're able to see, here's the victory that can happen this year, and see how that lines up with victories that can happen the year after and 10 years from now, and that's what keeps you going? Yeah, and I mean, uh, not gonna lie, like Bernie Sanders, he really energized me, and I think a lot of people, he, yeah. um, you know, really started this uh, workers' movement, and it really it took one person and one one campaign to, you know, rock the boat for corporations. Yeah, seriously, and I think, you know, what I've seen is is that campaign hasn't been successful in itself, but more and more campaigns are now using the tactics and the messages from the Sanders campaign. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you put it out there, someone might get inspired and end up using your stuff as their own, which is good. It is. Do you see that that's happening with your work? You're putting a lot of cool ideas out there. You're putting a lot of cool projects and programs and events out. Are you seeing that kind of uptake? Um, I think with us, I mean, it's mutual. I mean, I get inspired by a lot. Like... I mean, just being a part of Puente for that amount of time, mm-hmm. um, I was able to see how the Latino community organized and stopped SB 1070, right. and we're using you know their tools or their like template mm-hmm. and kind of like putting it into the our new AAPI organization. Nice. So and and the same with like, you know, a lot of people they were inspired by the civil rights movement and learning how, you know, the tactics and strategies they did, we're still doing that in 2022. Yeah. I mean, not much has changed. (laughs) Right. I really like that historical approach to the work. You were talking about movements that fell apart and looking at why they fell apart and how to repair that and rebuild. You have a really thoughtful and um, forward-thinking approach to the work that I really appreciate. Yeah. I think maybe this is a good place to close, but do you have anything coming up with your organization that you want to promote? 
Well, um, September 24th, we are organizing a music festival called Bocella. Nice. Um, the flyer hasn't come out yet, but we're working with Birthday Arts Movement and then a couple other organizations, but more information to be announced. Nice. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe maybe when I publish this, I'll, I'll be able to put a link in. That sounds really exciting. <laughs> okay, yeah, it'll be cool. All right, well, thanks for recording with me today. Yeah. Well, well one last thing. Okay. I mean, what I truly believe, uh, what really drives me of doing this work is, I think if we, if we liberate uh, marginalized communities in America, then that will domino into liberating the whole world. And that, that's going to, um, it needs to be done with the climate crisis. And we need yes. to start fighting it as a whole planet rather than, you know, fighting for resources and all that. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to May to Amonkala for joining me on this episode of the Arizona Equals Conversation. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, or if you want to dive into the archives of past episodes, just visit equalityarizona.org stories. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in next Wednesday.